So I've been purposely selecting some longer scripture passages. If nothing else, it's a good excuse to read more of God's word, but also it allows some of the parents more time to make their way back. So that's not without accident. The Valley of Vision, a booklet full of Puritan prayers, opens up with the compiler or the editor, Arthur Bennett, his preface to the, to the book. And if you haven't used the Valley of Vision, I recommend picking it up. It's full of different prayers by Puritans, as I said, Charles Spurgeon, folks like that. They're written prayers. It opens up, though, in the preface where Arthur Bennett says this. Joby, if you want to hit that slide. And I've, ad- I've adapted the quote only slightly. He says, Prayer is communion with a transcendent and imminent God who on the ground of his nature and attributes, and I would add his saving actions as well, calls forth all the power of the redeemed soul in acts of total adoration and dedication. Or we might add supplication, even our requesting of God. Let me read that again. Prayer is communion with a transcendent, a God who's totally other and yet imminent. He's near to us. A transcendent and imminent God who on the grounds, on the basis of God's nature and his attributes, his characteristics, and what he does savingly to bring us into a relationship with him, on the basis of these things, he calls forth all of the power that can be mustered from our redeemed souls in an act, acts of prayer of total adoration and dedication to God. I think that's a wonderful definition of prayer. And it helps us think, too, about the basis on which we can even approach God in prayer. It's grounded in who he is. I think of 1 John 5.14, which we preached on not too long ago, where that verse says, and this is the confidence that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I think it would be easy to read past that verse and kind of gloss over it, but catch those last words. God hears us. That we have the ear of the creator of this universe. That there's a promise. The confidence we have, this is the confidence that we have, that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. It's incredible. It's, it's remarkable that God hears our prayers. But on what basis? It seems like, apart from God telling us that that's so, that would be a rather audacious thing for us to claim for ourselves and for us to believe that somehow the God of this universe who holds galaxies in place would somehow, that we would think that he somehow even pays attention to us. Oh, what is man that you are mindful of him, Psalm 8 says. And yet we see, and as I will try to persuade you of today, is that God in Christ, through the Spirit, has granted us access to approach him in prayer. That's the big idea for today's message, that God in Christ, through the Spirit, has indeed granted us access to approach him in prayer. And we will be working out of Romans 8 this morning, Admittedly, this is not an expositional sermon in the sense that I'm, I'm not preaching the point of Romans 8. I'm not preaching Romans 8 as it stands. But nonetheless, I am looking at Romans 8, of course, according to what it means in its context. 
but pulling out some of these key themes that I think will help us think rightly about prayer and specifically the granted access we have to come before God in prayer. And there are five grounds, there are five uh, bases, the basis of prayer, five of these in the passage that we will look at today. The first is our status as adopted children, our status as God's children. Two is the Spirit's assistance. Three is the Father's purposes. Four is Jesus's advocacy. And five is God's attributes, the divine attributes. So we'll hit all of those in turn. Let's start with our status as children of God. Read with me Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions, adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, of course, that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You'll notice the language in this passage that he, he contrasts specifically those who are in the flesh, that is, those who do not have the Spirit. He's not contrasting two different types of Christians here, but he's contrasting those who do not have the Spirit, those who are in the flesh, with those who have the Spirit and therefore are led by the Spirit. And here's the key. If you have the Spirit, he argues, if you're not in the flesh, but if you're led by the Spirit, that means you are a child of God. Everyone who is led by the Spirit of God is a son or daughter of God. And this Spirit is the Spirit of our adoption. It's a Spirit testifying to our adoption that we have been made God's children. And we cry through the Spirit to God, Abba, you are our Father. The Spirit witnesses to our Spirit that we are children of God. The few days ago, I was, um, I was Googling, I was trying to find a website, um, the old Around the Word website that Dan, uh, Dan has done Around the Word Ministry, you may know. And so I was trying to Google to see if that website still existed. And so I searched Around the Word, Dan Allen. And one of the first results was a Dan Allen LinkedIn account. And so I was, of course, curious, and I clicked on it. And it was a Dan Allen who his profession was listed as a body percussionist. A body percussionist. And this is someone who apparently he hosts um, seminars. Well, he, I mean, it's Dan, right? He hosts seminars of, of how you can learn to body percussion and, you know, use your body as a drum, essentially. And I was thinking, you know, wow, I, I knew Dan was really into softball and, and making softball videos, but I did not know that he also had this side gig of body percussion. We should get him up on the stage and we can mic, you know, his body percussion. I, it, just picturing Dan doing that just was hilarious to me. That's a case of mistaken identity, right? On more serious notes, we can sometimes, people can sometimes undergo mistaken identities where maybe they get Alzheimer's or dementia and they forget who they are. It's a serious thing to mistake someone for someone else or to mistake who you yourself are. 
when people start to forget who they are in dementia or Alzheimer's, um, they can't function. When it gets bad enough, they can't function in society anymore. It's a significant thing to lose sight of who you truly are. But we oftentimes can live, you'll notice, Paul wants us to know who we really are, that we are actually children of God, that we were not given the spirit in order to fall back into this mindset of slavery before God, that when Paul speaks of our adoption throughout his letters, he speaks of it as, as similar to Israel when they were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt in order to be God's son as a nation. And so likewise, we have been redeemed from under the law, no longer relating to God in this attempt to where we might think it's based off of our obedience before God. And therefore, we are in fear because there's this constant fear of God's judgment because we don't keep his law. But now we relate to God as his children, as a father who loves his children, who accepts his children, where we obey not in order to earn his favor, but because we already have his favor. In Matthew 7, Jesus speaks about, um, he says, you know, which one of you, if you had a, had a kid and they asked for bread, you'd give your kid a stone? Or if your kid asks for a fish, ask the dad or the mom for a fish, the parent would give him a serpent. Well, of course not. Even as, you know, sinful human beings, there's an impulse that most parents have to treat their children properly to give them bread when they ask, not a stone, not a serpent that would, that, would, that would poison them or bite them. And so Jesus says, even you who are evil, you know how to good, good, give good gifts to your children. How much more our Father who is in heaven is willing to give good things to those who ask of him. And so our first ground our first basis for prayer is the fact that we are God's children and he is our loving and he's our good father who loves to give his children good things the second is the spirit's assistance Romans 8 18 through 27 read with me for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so as creation itself 
is groaning for redemption, and as believers, we ourselves are groaning for our redemption when all things will be made new creation as well as our own bodies. So the Spirit groans with our groanings, entering into our prayers, so to say, to make our prayers acceptable and according to God's will. You'll notice verse 26 and 27 where the Spirit is helping us in our weakness. Specifically here then applied in one case, this how the Spirit helps, is in our prayers. Because we don't know how to pray. Namely, the, the idea seems to be that we don't know what to pray for. We know, as verse 28 is going to get into, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But we don't, we're not omniscient. We don't know all things. We don't have all wisdom. We don't exactly know how to pray towards that end in every single situation. And yet God promises here that the Spirit, as we are groaning and and awaiting for that promise, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, we're waiting for glorification in the new heavens and new earth, that the Spirit groans as well, entering into our very prayers, so that in some ways you might think of it almost like a translation process. If you've you've ever been in a cross-cultural setting, maybe on a missions trip, and you've used a translator, you'll speak, and then the translator will... Uh, translate what you've said so that people in another language can understand you. It's sort of like that, except even better. It would be like, I'm talking and the translator goes, yeah, 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 he doesn't actually mean that. This is what he means. This is what he wants to be praying. Because we don't know exactly how to pray according to God's will. God, your will be done, as we sang, but the Spirit, we have a guarantee that our prayers are not going to be fruitless because of our ignorance. Because the Spirit empowers our prayers to be heard before God perfectly and in line with his will so that they can be effective. It's incredible. Thirdly, we see that we have reason to access God in prayer because of the Father's purposes. Read with me verses 28 and 30, through 32. Verse 28, continuing, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? That if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The all things here that that God is working together for our good, this good is not necessarily however we would define good, right? But it's the good, namely, of being conformed to the image of Christ. It's the saving good that God has in store for us, the very end of Jesus' death and resurrection applied to his church. And we have the promise that all things in our life, for those who love God, for those who are his children, for those who are led by the Spirit and are adopted as sons and daughters, we have the promise that all things in our life are working together for good by the sovereign control of God, his, his, his good, loving providence to shape us into his people who are conformed into his image. 
And that means that as we pray, we pray fueled with those promises. That as we pray for God to use whatever circumstance we're in, even difficult circumstances, understanding that in his wisdom, that we don't always understand why things are happening, but we know God is totally wise and he's totally compassionate and totally good, that we can pray with the confidence that all the circumstances that we're going through or all the circumstances that our fellow members are going through as we pray for each other, that we can, we can pray knowing that these are, 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 are boosted forward, they're, 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 they're propelled forward by the very promise of God to ensure their results. I think of Moses in Exodus 32 at the, at the incident where Israel right after getting the law, immediately rebels, and they make the golden calf. And God is, is talking to Moses about how he's going to basically destroy Israel at that point, and I'll make for you a new people, Moses. And Moses goes to the mat with God on behalf of Israel, and he says, why, why would you, in Exodus 34, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? God, you're the one who brought them out with, with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent this God brought them out just to kill them in the mountains? He says, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. You promised the patriarchs. In other words, Moses can pray with, I mean, Sometimes you want to be like, Moses, is that allowed? You're talking to God. But Moses is going to, map, going to the map with God based on the very promises of God himself. He's simply calling God to be who he is. God, you're God. God, you made promises and you love to fulfill your promises. Fulfill your promises. Keep your oath. Don't let your glory be, be, be thrown in, in the mud by these Egyptians who would say terrible things of you. Show us who you are. Be a faithful God. And of course, that is exactly who God is. And so we pray as well with confidence, fueled by the, the very promises of God and the very purposes of God, and as sure as they are, as sure as our prayers are. Fourthly, we have Jesus' advocacy. Jesus' advocacy. In Romans 8, 33 through 34, read with me. Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen ones, the elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here I want to draw your attention. There's a list of things that, that, that basically enable us. It's impossible for us to be condemned, right? God is the, the one who chooses and who justifies, and Christ died, and he's been risen, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. But I want to draw our attention to the last one in that list. Indeed, not only has he died and risen and ascended, but now he is constantly interceding for us. Christ's intercession is not adding anything to what he's already accomplished in his cross and resurrection, but it is the manifestation of that reality in the presence of God constantly on our behalf. It is the constant application of the gospel on our behalf before God. Christ representing his death before God for us. And so 
think about some of these other passages in Scripture as it relates to Christ's intercession. 1 John 2, verse 1. John says that he writes so that none of us sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. We have someone who will go and who will argue for us before God. That one's mine. I saved that person. He is the propitiation not only for our sins, but the sins of all those across the world, he goes on to say. Christ advocates his propitiatory sacrifice on our behalf. The wrath of God has been satisfied. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all, the one who paid the release price for our bondage, the ransom. And he's the one mediator that is available to us, the one mediator between God and man because he himself is God and man. He can represent men as himself being men, and he can represent us to God as the one who himself is God. Hebrews 7:25 says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ lives forever, eternally, always before God, making intercession for us. And so in chapter 9, verse 24, for Christ has entered into heaven itself, no longer the, the earthly copy of heaven, the tabernacle, but now Christ has entered into the real deal, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Think about that, Christian, that we have our Savior before God on our behalf this very moment. And every moment that you struggle in the Christian life, every moment that you sin, Christ is pleading your case and saying, yes, but I paid for those sins. This one is mine. And so Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then with confidence, this is the application he's drawing. If that's true, if Jesus stands in heaven for us, then let us, believer, let us draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to, for help in time of need. Jesus cleanses our entire life before God, let alone our prayers, the imperfection of our prayers, even our prayers being stained with sin and stained with selfishness. Christ cleanses our prayers to be made acceptable before God. And Christ is praying on our behalf. And Christ's prayers always go answered. Isn't that a beautiful sentiment to, to think about Christ is praying on, just as in John 17, when he was praying on behalf of his disciples and all those in the future who would believe in him? Christ's prayer always go answered. And he is praying for his church. Christ intercedes for us. I think of, uh, it's common for us, it's entered kind of into the Christianese, you might say, where we oftentimes close our prayers by saying, in Jesus' name, Amen which of course is a biblical thing to do, I'm not knocking that, but I wonder how, much of, how, much, how many of us have thought about that and why we do that. Why do we say in Jesus' name, amen? So Jesus does tell us, ask in my name. Um, but you might think of it this way. It's not, it's not so much that we just sort of tap, tap that onto the end of our prayers, like we're just supposed to do that, and that's just something we say. Um, it's not that somehow by just saying his name, it becomes a magic formula like hocus pocus, and therefore our prayers all of a sudden are more effective. 
It's, it's more like this. If you were to go, say you were tasked, there was a famous musician or a famous artist of some sort who was coming into the city, and you were tasked to be on the crew for the concert. And so you have, they gave you a special like access badge or whatever. And so you show up to do your job, and um, as you show up, there's security there, right? There's some bouncers or whatever who are guarding the, the doors. They don't, they're not going to let anybody in. And so as you approach, they say, hold on, hold on, you can't come through here. But what do you do? You show them your access. You say, in the name of, of this musician, so to say, right? Because I am working on their behalf, I have access. Or you might think of it this way. If you've ever uh, met someone who you have, you're having a, co a common friend, okay? This is a stranger to you, but you know that they know somebody that you know. And so you walk up to them and you introduce yourself and it's kind of the awkward stranger thing. But immediately when you say, hey, I'm also a friend of so-and-so, they immediately get warm to you. And there's just a camaraderie that you, you immediately have a bond. Like, oh yeah, that's a great friend of mine. That's the idea here, that when we pray in the name of Christ, it's that we're saying based on his death and resurrection. Based on, not based on my own merit. How do we, going back to 1 John 514, the confidence that we have that whatever we ask, he hears us. Like, who on earth do we think we are? That in our own, kind of just in who we are, that we would be heard by God, that we would be able to approach him. You think of Esther as she came before the king and he had to raise the scepter. Otherwise, if he didn't do that, she would die. And if that's true of an earthly king, how much more the king of the universe, that we think we can approach God with our, with our prayers, that he somehow cares about them. But of course he does, and the reason that we can approach him is because we come in the name of Jesus. We don't come in our own name. We don't bring our requests based on who we are, but based on what Christ has done. So one of my uh, professors, Dr. Carson, he used to close all of his prayers this way. He used to say, instead of in the name of Jesus, he used to say, for the sake of Jesus, or for Jesus' sake. And maybe that's helpful for you to just remind yourself as you pray, instead of saying in Jesus' name, which might sound vague, to say something like, because of what Jesus has done to save me, amen. That's how we access the Father, through Christ's intercession. And lastly, number five, because of who God is, because of God's attributes, the divine character. Read with me verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I suppose those things would seem like they're separating us from the love of Christ, right? You might think, well, wow, if I'm going through all these hardships, maybe God doesn't in fact love me. Well, as it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors, just as Revelation spoke. We conquer, same word, through Christ who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says that nothing can separate us from God's love. He appeals 
his confidence to, to be able to say these things about God's purposes, about how the, the, the groaning we have as we await for the final realization of our salvation and the renewal of all things, that one of the ways that, 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 that is grounded, that is sure to Paul, is the character of God. He says specifically God's love. He appeals to who God is as the basis of his confidence. And I would argue that that also serves then as a basis for our confidence in prayer. That we have a God who is loving towards us, and that's just one of his attributes. Shall we go on? We have a God who is both able and willing to answer our prayers. He's able. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There's nothing then that he would want to do but has to say, oh, shucks, I guess I can't do that one. That one's beyond my skill set. It's a little bit above my pay grade. He's omniscient. There's nothing that he doesn't know. So as he, as he answers our prayers, as he oversees our lives, there's, there's no sort of gaps in the knowledge. There's no oopsies happening because he hasn't thought it through. He's perfect in his wisdom, means, meaning that he takes all of his perfect knowledge and he can apply it perfectly. He's immutable, which means that he doesn't change. Not only does he not change, but his purposes and his plans don't change. We're not going to have one plan over here, and one time he's, he's destined us for to be conformed to the image of Christ, and then tomorrow we wake up and we're not sure if that will be his purpose anymore. He never changes. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He has all that he needs to be who he is and do what he does. He is sovereign. There's nothing that's outside of his control. Not only is he able, but our God is willing our God is good. He never plans things that are bad for us. He gives us what we want if we knew what we should actually want. He is loving. He is just. He will bring about that which is right. He is merciful. He's compassionate on us even when we don't deserve it. He is gracious to us. He gives us things despite the fact that we don't deserve it. He is forbearing. He's patient with us. And he is a remembering God. He doesn't forget. He doesn't overlook. Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow. If you remember this widow, it was a parable Jesus says in Luke 18. He says that he, he taught this parable so that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is the parable that Luke says that Jesus taught so that we would always pray and not lose heart. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy to lose heart. You want a parable that's going to encourage you not to lose heart and to keep praying. Jesus is saying, this is, or Luke is saying, this is the one that Jesus taught for that end. Okay? He talks about how there was a, there was a widow who had an injustice that was done to her. And of course, a widow, especially in that society, was very vulnerable. And so she goes to the judge, and the judge is a is an unjust judge. He doesn't do what's right. He's a corrupt judge. And yet, because the widow just kept on bothering him and kept bringing her case before the judge, eventually, the judge says that this widow, he, she keeps bothering me. I'm going to give her justice. If nothing else, because I'm annoyed and she's beat me down by her continual coming, it says. And the Lord then said, Jesus, hear what that unrighteous judge, judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? If that's true of an unjust judge, how much more the God who is the very definition and foundation of justice in this universe? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. And if so, with an unrighteous judge, how much more with the righteous God? 
And so, believer, God in Christ through the Spirit has granted us access to approach him in prayer. It's an amazing thing when we think about that we have the confidence that God hears us. I think when I was preaching on that passage in 1 John, I used the illustration of if you were to, uh, if the President of the United States was to give you a phone that he put, he put a phone line specifically on his desk in the Oval Office, and he said, I want you at any time, I mean this sincerely, I care what you think, I want, to, I want to implement some of your ideas, I want to know what's going on on the ground. This line is just for you. And you call it, and as soon as you call it, this will ring on my desk and I'll answer it, and you'll have immediate access to me. Okay? We'd be like, whoa, the President of the United States. Okay? Regardless, put in the President who you like. Okay? The President of the United States is giving me access to talk to him immediately. We'd be blown away by that access. And yet we have the very ear of the God of the universe. And do we avail ourselves of it? I need to be reminded of this as well. I hope that with a, with a message like this, that what it does and what I, I pray it does for myself is that it stirs us up to realize the privilege that we have to actually pray before God so that we'd be more encouraged to do it. That all of the things we looked at, these are things that have been brought about and they have been made possible by the very gospel itself. The gospel is what pays the phone bill, you might say, in other words. That we are God's children, how? Because Christ has adopted us through the gospel. That we have the spirit as the one who assists us because Christ, raised to heaven, seated at the throne, has now poured out the spirit for his people. That God's, the God the Father, his purposes that are sure working all things together for good were accomplished in the very death and resurrection of Christ. They are the mere outworking of the gospel. And Jesus is our advocate based on his death and resurrection. Our prayers are made effective through the gospel. We have a Trinitarian basis for our, for our praying life, right? The Spirit, the Father, and the Son. And then, of course, God's attributes, such as his love, which come to display in the gospel the very death and resurrection of Christ on behalf of all who believe. And so that, that quote on prayer from the Valley of Vision again, Prayer is communion with a transcendent and imminent God who on the ground of his nature and attributes and saving actions calls forth all the powers of the redeemed soul in acts of total adoration and dedication. And I would love, it's my prayer that as a church we would be as we seek to be a people that's increasingly shaped by the gospel, we want to remember the gospel every week. We, we are people who, the only reason we're here this morning is because the gospel saved us and has made us a people. And so what does it mean to be a people shaped by the gospel? Well, a truly gospel-centered church must then be marked by prayerfulness. If we're truly to be gospel-centered, and if the gospel, one of the ways it comes to its most beautiful expression is the access that, that we then have to approach God in prayer, a gospel-centered church must be a praying church. That's how the gospel works itself out. The prayer is a beautiful reflection of the relationship that is now restored between us and God. And of course, it makes a beautiful cycle as well, right? If the gospel produces a prayer, praying church, a praying church advances the mission of the church in saving lost souls and making them into maturing followers of Jesus. Which I'd like to say, too, that if you're here today and you're not a believer if you're not yet someone who has actually put your trust in Christ, 
We're speaking of this beautiful access we have before a holy God, a God who in our, own, in our own nature, who we are on our own, our sin, could never approach a holy God and have this sort of acceptance. But based on the death and resurrection of Christ, he pays for that sin so that all those who trust in Christ can have a right relationship with God and can actually have him as a father who hears our prayers. And so we would plead with you, if you haven't done that, to place your faith in Christ. And so, so the question now is, so what? So what do we do with this? What is the significance of a, of a message like this? And I hope it's obvious, but I, 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 would, I, would, I would love us walking away from this, our Sunday together this morning, to feel in a greater way the invitation that we have to pray. To feel a greater freedom to go to God in prayer not just a freedom and an invitation, but an eagerness, a longing, that we would have an increased longing to say, yes, God, I, wanna, I want to access you in prayer. I want to go to you in prayer. And so I have four effects, um, four ways that I think a message like this can affect how we pray. The first is that we pray boldly. We approach God without shame or cowering because we know that in ourselves, when we, when we kind of we, we kind of shy away, I think it's because we know that we ourselves are undeserving. But we need to be reminded of the, of the reality of the gospel, that we are actually God's children, that Christ intercedes for us. And we don't have any reason to be in shame as we approach God in prayer. Because God himself has paid the way. Secondly, we can pray with confidence. So not only do we access God boldly, we enter to his, his throne of grace boldly, but then as we pray, we pray confidently, knowing that God indeed answers. And as a good God, just like if my kid asks for something that would not be good for them, I am a good father and don't give it to them, so God sometimes says no to our prayers. And that doesn't mitigate his, the fact that he answers our prayers or that he's a good father. That's part of being a good father. But we, we know that when we pray that the Spirit translates our prayers to be perfectly in accordance with his will. And we know we have, that none of our prayers go unheard because of Christ's death on our behalf. And so we pray boldly, we pray confidently, we pray appreciatively, we pray gratefully, recognizing the beauty of what it is, just like how amazing it is that we actually get to pray, not taking it for granted. And fourthly, I think we would pray frequently that the more this gets down into our bones, the more we're going to instinctively pray. The more we appreciate the ability we have to pray, the more we will take advantage of it. So as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, this is another way that we as a church are shaped by the gospel as we're reminded of the gospel every week. It's Christ's death on our behalf that is pictured in the Lord's Supper his body and his blood pictured in the elements here. It's his death on the cross that has made us no longer slaves under the law, but now we are redeemed from under the law. As Galatians says, Christ was born of a, of a woman under the law so that he might redeem those under the law that they would become sons and daughters through adoption. And Christ has accomplished that. In the gospel, we see that Christ is our interceder. He is the one who, through his death and resurrection, gives us access to God. And we also see the love of God displayed. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. And if we ever doubt the love of God, there is no greater testament to that reality than the very cross of Christ, than the very hill of Calvary. 
And so as we approach the Lord's Supper this morning, we do believe that the Lord's Supper is a, is a message specifically that is meant to be spoken to believers. It's something that is meant to be received specifically by those who are trusting in the realities depicted therein. And so if you're here today and you are not yet a believer, we're so glad to have you with us this morning, but we would ask that you would refrain from partaking in the Lord's Supper with us. Um, the Lord's Supper, as Paul says, he warns us to take the Lord's Supper in a way that is worthy of it, that is a way that matches its meaning, and so he says that we should judge ourselves lest we be judged, that we should discern the body. We should discern what's actually going on here. And so if you're someone here today who is a believer in Christ, not living in open, unrepentant sin, but someone who in your struggling faith is continuing to, to stride towards Christ, albeit imperfectly, we would, we would invite you to come forward this morning and find encouragement in the message that God preaches to us in the Lord's Supper of his love displayed to us and the access we have to him through the gospel. Hear the words of the institution. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And believer, in the same way, he took also the cup after supper, saying that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All the promises of God are yes in this cup. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death 